0: the return on investment of 10 20 minutes of meditation every day is is extraordinary just like spending you know 2 minutes in the morning and 2 minutes in the evening brushing your teeth we have to be thinking about these lifestyle changes if we can all be focused on prevention and and use that as the life lifelong pursuit we're going to keep far more people out of the system but then for those who are in the system our goal should be get them out of the system as soon as possible so it's manage prevent keep people thinking about mental health When they have a need, get them out as soon as you can. What's the future of health? Join doctors, Jessica Shepherd, Gotham Gulati, and myself, Jordan Schlain, as we embark on a conversational journey with prominent speakers, experts, and innovators from the stages of the annual health conference. The goal is to explore the ideas that put humanity at the front and center of our evolving healthcare system. After all, health is about people, isn't it?
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Gotham Gulati. On today's episode, we bring you Russell Glass, where we discuss the future of mental healthcare. Russ is the CEO at Headspace Health, where he leads the company in helping create a world where everyone is kind to their mind. Headspace Health is the world's most comprehensive and accessible mental health care platform, offering mindfulness and meditation tools rooted in science, plus coaching therapy and psychiatry for every mind at any moment. So with that, let's begin the conversation. Well, welcome. I'm here with Russell Glass from Headspace Health. Welcome to the Health Matters podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: So we're just kicking off the conference here today, or yesterday, I guess, but today's sort of the first full day, and I'm lucky enough to be sitting here with the, the CEO of, of Headspace. So rather than me making an introduction, why don't you tell the listeners who you are and what you're doing?
0: Sure. I'm Russell Glass. I'm the CEO of Headspace Health, and we are focused on transforming mental health care to improve the health and happiness of the world.
1: Mm, big mission. Pretty big mission. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really big mission. And also a very contextual and relevant mission that's increasingly so, unfortunately, right? The mental health crisis is is entering a space that we no one hoped that we would be in. But a number of factors have been at play here. So, So tell me, you know, before diving into what is the root cause of some of these issues that we're seeing? Because I'm really curious about the language around it, how we define it, what's causing these things, what things you're seeing as part of your you know, your patient base with Headspace Health. Tell me a little bit, how did you get into this space? Like, why did this space matter to you?
0: Yeah, it's funny. I was raised by a child psychologist. And so maybe there were some seeds planted from a very early age. But I really had no, I had no career ambition towards this. I was an entrepreneur that had founded multiple companies I had outside of healthcare. So i had never been in the healthcare space before. My last company I sold to LinkedIn, and I ran the marketing solutions business there for a number of years, and left to be Dad. I had you know, three, three small girls at the time Ooh, that's now, a handful. What's that? That's a handful? It's a handful. Yeah, it's getting to be more <laughs> a handful. Uh, they're 13, 11 and eight now, so larger hands. And when I left LinkedIn, I spent time with them and, and about a year and a half just, just being Dad and, and just enjoying getting to know them better but realized I wanted to go back into the workforce and that led me to okay if I'm going to go back I'm going to leave them every day it should be something that the world needs right i want to focus on on a mission and i came across a company called ginger which was really thinking about this was back in 2018 really thinking about this huge supply demand imbalance we see in mental health this you know world health organization estimate that there are a billion people that have a mental health condition and 70% of them aren't getting care. Ginger was looking at that and saying, how do we solve for this, right? And, and I, I just fell in love with not only the size and scale of the need, again, maybe my mom planted some seeds, but then when I thought about my kids and the, the data clearly showed that one of them was very likely to have a mental health condition in her lifetime, right, if not two. And so it just felt like something I could spend the rest of my life focused on and trying to solve for.
1: Great. Thank you for sharing that backstory. I mean, let, let's get into some of the, the, the nitty gritty here. Let's talk about the definition of mental health. Like what does mental health mean to you? Because I know with Ginger and, and Headspace now, if you look at mental health culturally across the globe, it has different meanings for different people and different stigmas for different people across, across the world. Are we evolving our definition of mental health to be more inclusive of things that are Generally, causing us anxiety because those numbers—if you look at that prevalence—it's much, much bigger. Or are we staying focused in the clinical realm of what mental health is, at least defined by the medical institutions?
0: You have to use the broader definition to encapsulate everything that mental health is, and 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 when you use that definition, when you think about everything that goes into brain health and emotional health, and all the way up to SMI or serious mental illness conditions. We all have mental health needs. We talk about this notion that more people need to be brushing their brain, right? Like we, we brush our teeth and we, you know, think about dental health, not because we have a tooth problem today, but because we're trying to prevent tooth problems. We're trying to keep from having cavities that cause more serious also, issues. Also, no
1: one likes going to the dentist.
0: Nobody likes going to the dentist. Of course, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so we talk about this as well in mental health, which is like we have to be brushing our brain. We have to be thinking about mental health earlier. We have to be building practices so that we avoid more serious issues down the road. Because as like in any healthcare, as you know, once things get acute, they they get far more expensive and complicated to manage. And so we talk about it very early, which is just building things like a mindfulness practice, building things like, meditation practice, so that you can manage some of the ups and downs of life without things getting more acute. And then as we see people that have more and more need, we want to be there to support them as well.
1: So give our listeners a sense of the cross-section of the type of patients that you see come through. Or Do you call them patients or what, what? how do you refer to them? Are they, I mean, customers, clients, patients? I mean, what is, how does headspace think about that?
0: We think of them as members. We members, think of them as members, okay. Yeah. And, and, and so
1: what's that cross-section look like? What's that pie chart?
0: We see all types coming in to, to think about their mental health from a headspace standpoint. They, they come in to build a mindfulness meditation practice. We have millions of members who, who come in and work on their mental health and develop that practice. And as we step up in acuity... We have people that are coming in for behavioral health coaching that are still subclinical, but they're trying to think about how do I better organize my life? How do I think about building practices that are going to help improve my mental health over time? And then we have people that we refer to therapy and psychiatry. Then they become patients of our therapists and psychiatrists. And
1: And you do that, you have that as part of your... Service offer.
0: That's correct. Okay. So, I mean, the idea of this is how do we have a fully end-to-end experience that can assess where people are, can help them navigate the complexity of the mental health system by pointing them in the direction based on what we've learned about them, get them into that care, and then step them down out of that care into the right level over time, Right. This is all about consumerization of the mental health experience. We talked about how complex it is and how difficult it is for people to understand. Even if they know they have a need, they don't know what the solution is. They don't know what kind of care they should, they should be getting. We want to make that easy for them. We want to make it low stigma, easy to access, bring them to the right place, get them to a super high quality provider and then step them down so they can manage that over time.
1: And is it all virtual at this point, or do you have an in-person offering as well?
0: Today, it's all virtual. It's all digital, accessible on a mobile device.
1: And how, like, so maybe call me old school. But Old school. <laughs> I mean, my training, there is a benefit, in, you know, to having some sort of in-person interaction as well. Would you agree to that? And I, I'm curious whether you've looked at studies in terms of outcomes based on In person versus virtual, of course, virtual, and maybe it's not an either-or thing. I'm sure it's not an either-or thing. There's 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 a a rhyme and reason to having both. But in what circumstances does virtual fit a good solution, or the digital solution provides a good solution or outcome versus the in person? Like, do you differentiate between those two?
0: You know, one of the things that I think the pandemic really proved was just how effective digital interventions are writ large. But I think specifically to the mental health world, we've seen that virtual care is as effective, if not more effective than in-person care for for the right level of need. And so when you look across the the spectrum of virtual reimbursement right now, almost everything has reverted back to, you know, a level higher than pre-pandemic from a reimbursement standpoint, but it's sort of reverted back to Pre pandemic type levels, except for behavioral health. 60% of reimbursement right now from a telehealth standpoint is behavioral health related. And we've seen a continued utilization of virtual versus in person for behavioral health because it works. The reason I say it works better in a lot of cases is really does get down to stigma, where in an environment where you have 50% of US counties that have zero mental health providers in county lines. That means people have to drive a pretty long way to get to.
1: Yeah. So access or just getting, you know, vicinity. I mean, especially rural locations, not having access. I mean, so this really solves for an access issue.
0: That's the second piece, right? Yeah. I was just talking about stigma, stigma to start with, but, but yeah. yes, access also. Stigma though, when you have to drive to an office that everybody knows is the, the therapist's office or the psychiatrist's office, and you have to park your car in front of that office and everybody knows, oh, that's Jimmy's car, right? That's going to his therapist appointment that is not a great experience. Having to get dressed for a lot of people that are really struggling and get into the car and go to the office is difficult. Having to leave work to spend an hour in traffic or a half hour in traffic to get to the appointment. I mean, all of those issues go away in a virtual context. So that's, I think, one of the reasons we've seen so much adoption from a virtual standpoint. On the other side of this, there are absolutely impatient needs in mental health. So as you get higher in an acuity level, you have more serious mental illness, you have things that require nutritional monitoring for certain types of eating disorders, you have things that require monitoring for, for instance, substance use disorder treatments, medication-assisted treatments, then yeah, you you want people to be in person. Our contention is though, all of these people that don't need the in-person treatment, we want to pull them out of in-person because that frees up capacity for all those that do need it. That's great. In, right? In, in, in and in a world that we have such a supply-demand imbalance.
1: I think that actually makes really good sense, right? So the virtual first approach, triage out depending on where they are, and then utilize the in-person system for those that ultimately need that type of setting. This is just a great example of, I mean, getting into the whole learnings from COVID, right? I mean, We tend to swing the pendulum all the way to extremes and everyone's like, oh, telehealth is going to solve everything. And it didn't. We saw it plummet down, but there are certain use cases in which it makes great sense if you sort of look at and segment it out of which behavioral health is one of those, right? For the reasons that you just talked about, which I think is really fascinating. Anything else that you've noticed as we're sort of on this topic of the virtual assistance for mental health, you know, still having an elevated engagement after COVID, what else did you learn coming out of there? Like, are there things that you're seeing drop off? Are there things that you're seeing that you were surprised about coming out, that you're, you're seeing your members, how they're engaging with your platform?
0: You know, I, I would say the biggest surprise was just how fast adoption escalated, right? Just how fast we saw people adopting these solutions. It was, it was like overnight you went from an evangelizing kind of a message and narrative, try this, it really works, it's really effective. But at the time, most people didn't even know how to use Zoom. Yeah. You know, they didn't.
1: (laughs) A lot of people still don't know. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. (laughs) But but at the time, it was it was foreign. It's weird. It's hard to remember what life was like before our constancy on Zoom. And so that evangelization that needed to take place was more than just try virtual. It was actually it was it was an adoption curve of these technologies that a lot of the population just had never used. Right, they had never experienced it, and so.
1: Now the technology needs to catch up a little bit, right, because it was sort of trying to fit a square peg in a round hole and get everyone to use video technology for this. But now that we know how people are utilizing it, we need to adapt and adjust it and evolve it.
0: I think there's a lot of that. And and, I mean, frankly, I mean, that's we take that on ourselves. Right. I think part of what we're trying to do is create these great experiences for our consumers, for our members. Do you
1: you have your own technology that you use for the video portion of it? We
0: use Zoom for the video portion, largely because it is so effective at managing And that's what most people are
1: familiar with as well.
0: It's right. Familiarity, that's right. But all of the experiences around it, we believe like don't reinvent the wheel when there's something high quality, HIPAA compliant, people understand it. But the experiences around it, my belief is that What virtual care gives you the ability to do is really create next generation consumer experiences, experiences that consumers actually have come to expect through the Amazons of the world, through using the Googles of the world. That expectation is absolutely carrying over into healthcare. And and I think the biggest, most successful healthcare companies of the future are going to be those companies that are really thinking about that member experience. What makes this easy for people? makes it so that when somebody they finally say you know what I'm going to I'm going to take the next step in the, in in my mental health care and then the experience is so elegant and so seamless that they are like I can't believe I didn't do this sooner and I I can't wait for my next session or I can't wait for continuing that journey that's what all of healthcare needs to move to and and of course we're focused on mental health but but I think that's where it's all going
1: now I want to come back to that word member, because to me, member means like it's a continuous engagement. Now, you, and everyone in healthcare should be in the business of putting themselves out of business, right? Like, yes, the mental health crisis is growing. Yes, you know, your patient population, member population is, is growing. But getting to some of the root causes here, you know, how do we fix this? Like, it's not a good thing that our mental health crisis is growing. I mean, it's great for business, but we should all be looking at how do we reduce these numbers ultimately, because that's when we succeed right? To actually eliminate the need for mental health interventions. What are you seeing as some of the root causes for the members coming into
0: headspace? I have a whole bunch of thoughts here. You know, starting directly answering your question on root causes, one of my favorite words, there are a plethora of reasons for the mental health crisis. I think that, you know, if you look at some macro trends, climate change is driving mental health need. Obviously, the pandemic has created an increasing loneliness factor you know, for thousands of years. I we, mean, a
1: sur- the U.S. Surgeon General has basically identified loneliness as right. one of our, our, our biggest crises of our time.
0: And, and the pandemic has only exacerbated that, right? It was happening before the pandemic. I mean, yeah. all these things were happening pre-pandemic, but the pandemic accelerated all of this. If you think about it, for thousands of years, work has been a social activity right even back when we were like gathering and hunting it was quite social and then all of a sudden the pandemic comes along and we are all isolated and many workplaces are still not seeing each other in person I think that is a is a real thing and a real concern from a mental health standpoint that that people aren't seeing each other as much as they were prior I I think political discourse and polarization is leading to mental health issues I think Wars.
1: The list goes on. I think, unfortunately, the list goes on and blue on and light.
0: on. Yeah, exactly. Blue light, mobile <laughs> devices, people getting less sleep. I mean, all of this, all of these are factors. And there's a plethora of reasons why we're seeing an increase. I don't, you said something earlier about this notion that, you know, we should all put ourselves out of business. I think that's true to an extent. But we should in my mind, I'll be in the business of prevention. And prevention is an always-on activity. How do we keep people from getting sick is the real question. Because if we can create lifestyle change, if we can, you know, there's just a study that you may have seen that was published in JAMA that meditation is as effective as as Lexapro in reducing anxiety. Think about that for a second, right? We've got this this drug that we are pre- over prescribing in a massive way, and yet, if you just have did, they
1: done head to head studies on that?
0: Yeah, no, they, they, they did. Were just published. Oh wow, just published. And, and who makes
1: Lexapro? Is that Pfizer?
0: I don't even know. But but the point is, lifestyle change, the return on investment of ten twenty minutes of meditation every day is is extraordinary. Just like spending you know, two minutes in the morning and two minutes in the evening brushing your teeth. We have to be thinking about these lifestyle changes. If we can all be focused on prevention and and use that as the life lifelong pursuit, we're going to keep far more people out of the system. But then for those who are in the system, our goal should be get them out of the system as soon as possible. So it's manage, prevent, keep people thinking about mental health. When they have a need, get them out as soon as you can.
1: So part of what you do is both a combination of symptom management, helping them now in the current state. I'm, and I'm curious what types of things that you guys offer from that standpoint. I'd imagine it varies across the spectrum depending on what the, what the specific issue is. And then what do you do to address root cause? Like, Are you looking at the social, I'm mean, going to hate to use the SDOH element of things, but are you looking at their social dynamics and all over the things around their home, or is that too far upstream for you guys to get involved with?
0: Yeah, no, and I don't mind you using that term at all. I think it's, in, in the mental health context, extremely important. You, you can't effectively treat mental health needs without understanding the social determinants and, and, you know, creating a therapeutic alliance for those who are coming in. It's, it's critically important.
1: And, and for those listening, I, I know I'm, I'm probably not supposed to be using acronyms like SDOH, but it stands for social determinants of health. Just sure. to clarify.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> I didn't know. I, you know, as a health podcast, maybe I figured everybody I, well, would know that Well, you'd think
1: that people would, but sometimes, you know, we should just avoid them.
0: Yeah, no, totally. A lot of
1: jargon and acronyms in healthcare, right?
0: Which creates stigma if people yes. don't understand things. Yeah, so, so my belief here is that you need to be thinking about those things. And the first thing that we're going to try to do in terms of helping people is to assess where are they, Right. What is the level of need here? And part of that assessment is understanding what are the factors involved in you know, the mental health need. Then we want to get them to the right level of care. And, and you start to see, like, already this is very different than the way the system tends to work. You, you tend to see somebody go right to a therapist. And we know that 80% of the time, that's actually an overutilization of that license therapists are incredibly valuable resources, incredibly well-trained to handle mental health needs. The vast majority of the time, someone does not need to see a therapist. They need to see, let's say, a behavioral health coach. That is a subclinical resource that can help with lifestyle change. They can help understanding what are those factors, help somebody work through how to make some changes, maybe it's it's sleep habits, maybe it's eating habits, maybe it's exercise habits, all these things that lead to maybe it's building a mindfulness practice. But then for those who need more care, getting them to the right level, the right kind of therapist, if medication management's needed, the right psychiatrist, you know, another problem in this country is is 70% of psychotropic drugs are being prescribed by primary care providers, the vast majority of whom are not really qualified to prescribe those drugs and try treat them properly. They just weren't educated on it. They had very and, and little- And do you
1: guys offer therapy? I mean, RX management is part of their- Yes. You do? We do. Okay. Yeah. And do you prescribe things as well? Or I guess on a case by case, depending on who's- For
0: specific. those who have a need, absolutely. So our psychiatry, our, our psychiatry department is really focused on medication management. So we don't use psychiatrists for therapy. We use our therapists for that. We use psychiatrists when med management or prescriptions are needed. We don't prescribe controlled substances. And that was a decision. You know, when you talk about the difference between virtual and in person, we actually believe that these controlled substances could use inpatient, in person support. And so we, we've strayed away from controlled substance.
1: Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I think the, the whole industry of, of psychiatry care needs to be looked at very clear, closely. I mean, when I went through training, no one cared about the root causes. Everything was just symptom management. It was just, you know, treat, treat, treat with as many drugs as you possibly can, which in, in, in turn have significant side effects and cause additional crises in the process of doing so. So not only is there a crisis that I see in the public marketplace from the patient standpoint, but even from the provider space and the way we've approached it from a treatment standpoint.
0: You can't blame the PCPs. I mean, what's happening is, you know, someone comes in PCPs, I'm using a primary care provider. You can't blame your primary care provider. You come in and you say, I'm not feeling great. And your primary care provider does sort of an analysis and says, you know what? It, it looks like you have depression as an example.
1: They know. But there's clinical criteria to be diagnosed with depression. It's not like a subjective. I mean, there's, you got to follow the guidelines. That's the right. DSM. But, but
0: most primary care providers can diagnose depression. Yeah. Right? They can diagnose anxiety. They can use the, the GAD or they can use other Assessments to help them diagnose. But the point is, though, they can diagnose it. They know that the best thing for this person would be a referral to, let's say, a therapist or, or a psychiatrist. But they also know that that referral is going to bounce right back because their patients can't find therapists and psychiatrists, 60% of which don't take insurance mm. in this country, yeah. right? There's literally three, four, five, six month wait lists to get access to providers that are in network. And so what happens is they say, well, try Lexapro, (laughs) right? Let's see if if it works. Let's see if it helps you. To your point, they don't really have much education in how to titrate those drugs. They know that it can have a positive response for some people. Certainly there are side effects to it. But that's why we have north of 20% of this country that are on some sort of drug like Lexapro. And estimates from sub-10% is who probably should be.
1: I mean, the amount of people... It's actually in our water system. That's how prevalent it is to be on these medications. There's a small percentage in the public water system that when you flush, you know, still remains in there. I mean, that's... that's it's pretty telling in terms of how many people are on some sort of these medications. If I may, I want to I jump in. This is just out of personal curiosity. Like, the crime we're seeing in the world is all being pushed back on, well, it's the mental health crisis. Do you see yourself as having a personal responsibility in terms of trying to identify and get ahead of some of these things? I and mean, we're seeing shootings and young kids, and not even just young kids, but everyone, I mean, there's, there's really a crisis in this country, and I'm referring to just the United States for those who might be listening abroad, but it might be pre- prevalent abroad as well. But a lot, of, a lot of our crime is being attributed to people not getting the proper mental health care that they need. And I'm just curious whether you've got a perspective or thoughts around that.
0: So first of all, I should say, I am a, I'm a firm believer that we need stronger gun control regulation. So let's start there. I, yeah. I, I think that, you know, it is bordering on negligent that our government hasn't figured out how to create stronger gun control regulations. At the same time, There is absolutely a mental health component to some of these mass shootings and some of these issues that we're seeing. And I think that starting in school curriculum, starting with meditation and mindfulness as part of, you know, just like we do physical education, we should have mental health education. How do you take care of your brain? How do you build a mindfulness practice? We know that people who are able to build a mindfulness practice are going to see significant reductions in stress levels, significant reductions in anxiety levels, depression levels. And that writ large would help society dramatically if we had more people thinking about their brain health and having better emotional responses than picking up a gun and shooting someone. Do you guys keep a
1: registry that that coordinates or communicates with government institutions to put people at war? i mean i know we're crossing a really tricky fine line here but like how do we how do we alert the appropriate individuals who might be at risk of doing some public harm
0: yeah i mean we're a we're a 50 state medical provider we're a hospital system so we follow all of the regulatory requirements if somebody is presenting with sirhi we we go through Standard assessments like the Columbia scale. SIRHI. No, Sorry, R-H-I-S. yeah, suicidal <laughs> intent or homicidal intent. When we have someone that is presenting with, with those conditions, we do an assessment to understand you know how serious is this, and we'll go all the way to calling of emergency services if if required. You know, most of the time, suicidal intent, homicidal intent is not imminent. Most of the time, it's uh, something that somebody is is. You know, potentially thinking about, but doesn't have a plan associated with it. But but we manage and monitor that and we'll turn it over to the appropriate authorities if needed.
1: So we've covered a lot of ground here. And that's a really heavy topic that we just ended on. So I don't want to end it on that heavy topic. But if for those listening, I mean, what is what is one thing that you wish every single person listening here would do to at least alleviate any or some concern of any mental health issues that they might be having? Like, what's a tip that you leave them with?
0: Yeah. You know, I would say know that you're not alone, that, you know, there are, you know, literally a billion people in the world. So what what do we got? Like 9 billion people total. So there are
1: eight, I think we're approaching eight,
0: eight, okay. 8 billion people total. It is a huge percentage of the world that, you know, has a need. So you're not alone. Raise your hand, you know, get some help. And for those who are, you know, dealing with stress, dealing with burnout, dealing with mild to moderate depression, anxiety, try meditation. You know, it is, it is such a game-changing experience. I personally, you know, found myself in a situation where I had anxiety. I had, I had some issues both with sleep as well as, as at work. And in three weeks – I started to, it started to click for me. And I, that was like eight years ago. And I haven't had that kind of anxiety since just from 10 minutes of meditation a day. Right. So y- this is the kind of thing that I think as more people understand, we'll see people staying out of a mental health system because they're, they're brushing their brain.
1: Well, that's, that's great advice. And, you know, for me, I hope I never have to, interact with the mental health system. But if I do, I'm glad that health Headspace is there for me if I, and when I need them. So thank you so much for your time today, Russ. That was great talking to you.
0: Really appreciate you having me on and, and thanks for discussing mental health. Obviously a critical a critical need right now.
1: Yes, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. If you're still there, I'm hoping it's because you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. We will be releasing new episodes regularly And to stay on top of the hottest topics, simply subscribe to Health Matters. That's H-L-T-H Matters on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. See you next time.